and our children through fifth grade, you are invited to attend Children's Church at this time. Hey, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to worship with you today. Happy Mother's Day to you. Today, I'm grateful for the mother that God has given me, thinking of my grandmothers as well. I'm grateful for my wife, who is a mother without compare. I'm grateful for all the women the Lord has put in my life who are spiritual mothers to me. We have so much to be grateful for today. I'm grateful for you. And if you have your Bible with you today, would you please open to the book of Micah? And we're going to be in Micah chapter 6, verses 9 to 16. If you're new to the Bible, maybe you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you. I'll give you a page number in that pew Bible. You'll find our passage on page 827. And I want to encourage you to open up the Bible, follow along with us as we work through this passage today. If I were to ask you to name for me your favorite attribute of God, think of God's character, all the, the infinity that makes God, God, what would you say are some of your favorite attributes of His? Uh, right off the bat, some of the, the easy things that we would pick would be things like His compassion, His mercy, His grace, His kindness, his patience. There's all these things we might point to, but I doubt if anyone among us would put in our top 10 list of favorite attributes of God, his judgment. It's just not something that registers on our radar as an attribute of God that we love. But if we avoid the judgment of God, if we avoid thinking about it or understanding it, well, we might do so to our own detriment. It's kind of like this. Uh, one time, uh, my family and I went to a Brazilian restaurant. Love a Brazilian restaurant. And uh, started off with a trip to the salad bar and got my rice and got my fried plantains. And I thought, oh, I'll get a little bit of salad too. So I got some salad. And then at the end of the salad bar was a bowl of vinaigrette. I took a couple of ladles of vinaigrette, threw it on my salad, went back to the table took a bite of my salad, and immediately realized that was not vinaigrette. It was a spicy oil made of lava and the heat of a thousand suns, not labeled. Like there wasn't a skull and crossbones on it or, or anything like that. It was just fire in a bowl inviting you to scoop it up. And so I took a bite of my salad, and I said, why is it so spicy? And immediate regret, uh, I had made a really horrible choice. Uh, when you're at the Brazilian buffet, a couple of things. Number one, look, don't put a green leaf in this place where meat could occupy in your tummy. My mistake, I apologize, I expose my shame for all of you to know. But you got to know where the fire oil is or you might regret your choices. And so, in what is perhaps the greatest analogy in the history of Christian preaching, at the buffet of God's character, oh, that's right, <laughs> you got to know about God's judgment. You got to know about all the things that make God, God, and His judgment is a major part of who He is. We don't like to talk about God's judgment. 
And why not? Well, it's uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, it's also, I don't know if you know this, it's Mother's Day. The judgment of God and Mother's Day, not normally two things that go hand in hand together. Uh, also, uh, the judgment of God, sometimes we, we feel like that, that produces for us a scary God, a, a fearful God, a frightening God. Our culture has no room for a God of judgment. It's assumed that a God of judgment is also a God who lacks grace and lacks love. Uh, I think a lot of Christians avoid thinking about or talking about God's judgment, especially with non-Christian friends, because it's a subject that immediately evokes an emotional response. Even later today, you might be on the phone with someone and they say, how was your Mother's Day? It was great. We went to church and we went to brunch and had beautiful weather. It was great. Oh, you went to church. What was church about today? <laughs> oh, it was about the judgment of God on our sin. What is wrong with your pastor? Why would that be uh, the Mother's Day passage? But when we fail to talk about the judgment of God. We leave so much of the Bible behind. We're ignoring the very words of Jesus, who himself said that all people would face the judgment of God. God's judgment is talked about in all four Gospels, all throughout Paul's letters, the writer of Hebrews, James, Peter, John in his revelation. All these give us pictures of the judgment of God. And why did they do it? Why was it so prominent in the ministry of Jesus? It's because they cared for souls. It's out of love for people that this understanding of God's judgment was put before them so that we would see God in all of His fullness, God as the right judge over our souls, and that we would respond to that judgment. And embedded in that judgment is the gift of God's grace that we could be judged sinless, righteous, His children, and we could be judged for reward rather than punishment. They give us these pictures of judgment because they care for people, and so it was with the prophet Micah. In the passage we're studying this morning, he gives us a warning of God's impending judgment, but it's a warning that's embedded with grace. Now, when we respond properly to these portrayals of God's judgment, the result will be, just quite frankly, a better life. We will live in ways that honor God, ways that are proper for what He expects of His people. If I were to say what makes the good life for the Christian, you would have to land here and say a proper understanding of God's judgment. And so my goal today is for you to rejoice in God's grace to you, for you to enjoy the life that He has given you. But to get there, we need a deeper understanding of His judgment of our sin. And Micah chapter 6, verses 9 to 16 gives us two ways that God's judgment leads to a better life. So when we pick up reading in Micah chapter 6, verse 9, you, you have to remember that all of chapter 6 is one big courtroom drama. If you were with us last week or if you were to go back and start reading in verse 1, chapter 6, one big courtroom scene, CSI or Law and Order Jerusalem, whatever it might be, that's what's happening in chapter 6. It opened with a back and forth between God and His people, but when we get to verse 9, it's 
the, the time for dialogue is over. God has the floor, and he has two paragraphs that he's going to give. The first paragraph uh, contains his reasons for his judgment. The second paragraph is the nature of his judgment. Here's why God is judging his people, and then here's what that judgment is going to look like. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 9. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city, and it's wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. Are there still the treasures of wickedness and the accursed short measure in the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence, and its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouths are deceitful. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire, you cannot save. And what you do save, I will give to the sword. You will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You will tread grapes but not drink the wine. The statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their practices. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place. In the city's residence, an object of contempt, you will bear the scorn of my people. It's a passage all about God's judgment. Here's why God's judgment is coming. Here's what that judgment is going to look like. And if we understand this properly, the result will be for us better lives. Lives that live according to God's way, in His holiness, in His flourishing, rather than lives of frustration. And so Micah gives us two ways God's judgment leads us to better lives. The first is this, God's judgment helps us see our sin correctly. If you and I can see our sin correctly, if we can understand the places where we are living outside the boundaries of God's uh, revelation to us, then it brings us back into a place of flourishing, happiness, contentment, blessing. If you could know today that choices you're making or ways you're living are outside of God's will, wouldn't you want to know that? Well, God's judgment helps reveal that to us, and it does so here in this passage. In verses 9 to 12, God describes the actions of His people that are bringing about judgment. Here's the things you're doing that are going to bring my judgment. Now, it's important that before we dive into 9 to 12 and the reasons for judgment, we understand uh, the big picture of how we get here. And if you'll remember from verse 8 last week, do you remember how God requires his people to live? Micah chapter 6 verse 8 speaks of God's requirement. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Since God is our creator, since he's our heavenly father, he has the right to hold us accountable to his requirements. Now, we don't like to think about the word requirement and the word God in the same sentence, uh, the word requirement normally belongs to places like the RMV or the IRS. But we must not forget that even love has requirements. Mothers have requirements of love for their children, right? Don't belch at the dinner table. 
Don't use the bathroom in the front yard. Don't lick doorknobs. Don't live more than two driveways away, right? These are requirements of love. That's what moms give to us. Requirements of love exist in all of our relationships. Marriages have requirements of love. Here's a question that I ask grooms during their wedding ceremonies. I ask a similar question of brides as well. The question sounds like this. Do you receive this woman as your God-chosen wife? Commit to love her as Christ loves the church and live together with her in holy marriage. Do you commit to love her, comfort her, honor her, respect her, and keep her? Do you promise to forsake all others and be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And that dude better say, I do to this requirement of love. Requirements and love don't run counter to each other. Oftentimes, the requirement is the expression of love. It's how we show one another that we love each other. And so likewise, our God who loves us has given us compassionate requirements. But in the Garden of Eden, the serpent lied to Eve so she would doubt God's love in his requirements. And the evil one continues that deception today. He wants us to think that God's requirements are God's way of holding us down rather than setting us free. That they are God's form of punishment rather than an expression of his love and compassion. So God's made his requirements known to his people. And in verses 10 to 12, God pinpoints their specific sins, places where they have broken out of those requirements. So in 10 and 11, God describes cheating in the marketplace. In verse 10, he mentions the accursed short measure. If you have a different translation of the Bible, it might say the, the accursed short ephah. What are we talking about when we're talking about ephahs and short measures? Here's what we're talking about. If you went to the marketplace in Micah's day, vendors are set up all around and you would go to your vendor to buy a certain measurement of the thing you want, the spice or the grain. And there were some generally set standards of measurements. Let me show you what they were. Uh, they go from smallest to biggest. And they begin with a court. Uh, we're familiar with that. And so a court is, a, a biblical court was a little less than what you and I think of a court today. A cab was 1.11 quarts, an omer was 2 quarts, a C was 1.5 gallons, and then an ephah. That's the word we've got here in Micah. An ephah was 5 gallons. So what was a short ephah? I imagine it was something like this. The vendor has a large container that is ephah-sized. It looks ephah-sized. He would pour your grain into that ephah to measure how much you were going to take home with you. But it could be that his ephah had a false bottom in it so that you only got 90% of what you were paying for. He's cheating you out of 10%. Not enough that you would notice when you try to pick up a five-gallon bag. It would look like the right amount. It would feel like the right amount. And it's just a small tweak, but still, he's cheating you out of what you should rightfully get. This was the common practice in the marketplace. And this is everyday cheating of common people, ordinary people, poor people. Likewise, verse 11, God references wicked scales, bags of deceptive weights. 
So merchants used these schemes to cheat people all the time. And this flew in the face of God's law. Uh, God spoke explicitly against this practice in Leviticus 19 as well as in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But hey, business is business. Everyone's doing it. You've got to make a buck. It's just a little bit here and there. It's not really hurting anybody. We do what we got to do. God continues, though, to call out his people's sin in verse 12. He calls out the wealthy of the city, who he says are full of violence. We've seen that repeatedly in Micah's ministry. And then, not to be outdone, all the residents speak lies and are full of deceit. It's not just that the wealthy people are the bad people. The city is corrupt top to bottom. Just total sinfulness throughout. From the person who has the most to the person who has the least. There's one more description of corruption in this passage. It's found in verse 16. Verse 16, last verse of our passage. It's actually a summary of the two paragraphs. There's two lines in verse 16. The first line describes the sin or summarizes the sin of the people. The second line describes God's judgment against them. So the first line of verse 16 uh, again, summarizes the sin of God's people. It says this, The statute of, statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their practices. So who were Omri and Ahab? Omri was a king of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 16 says, Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did more evil than all who were before him. And what about Ahab? If Omri was rotten, what about Ahab? Well, Ahab's dad was Omri. And guess what? The wicked nut doesn't fall far from the wicked tree. Because here's what 1 Kings 16 says about Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. So rather than flourishing by living in the law of God, the people are living according to the quote-unquote law of Omri. They are practical Omriites. And rather than living in the peace of the house of the Lord, they are schemers in the house of Ahab. It's nasty business among God's people. It should have sobered Micah's audience to know that God saw their sin and they couldn't excuse it away. I mean, what defense could they give of themselves? They have zero defense for their actions. Hey, hey we didn't know. Yeah, they did. You knew since Leviticus 19. We're victims of all the schemers around us. You're perpetrators of violence and lies. But, but we've been sacrificing in the temple all this time, still worshiping Yahweh. Yeah, but you gave your hearts to Ahab long ago. Everyone was doing it. This is just normal business. This is just how we get by. Yeah, everyone's going to be judged as a result. When they cheated in the marketplace, they did not act justly. And when they were violent and lied to each other, they did not love faithfulness. And when they lived brazenly like Omri and Ahab, they were not walking humbly with their God. They lived 
to violate God's requirements for his people. And so God's judgment on our sin should sober our assessments of ourselves. Look, what God has strictly forbidden, Christian, we must not entertain. Christians are are okay with that sort of restriction as long as it's about the big sins, whatever you call the big sins or consider to be the big sins. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a this. I'm not not those big things. Yeah, well, God said don't do it. I'm not going to do that. But don't lose sight of the minutia of God's judgment, how specific it is. Lying, cheating, stealing, coveting, these things are not to be found among God's people. Christian people should be the most ethical business people in every field of service. We should work the hours we are supposed to work. We should do our jobs with dignity and honor. We should speak honestly to our co-workers and our employers. If you're a service provider, you should give accurate and fair quotes every time. Your billing should be honest without any fluff in it at all. When you try to sell your used car or you go to trade it in, don't act like you work for short EFA motors. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. But Cody, that's just normal business. You, you never disclose everything. Look, what God has forbidden, His people don't do. We're not going to live that way. You're going to sell your soul for an extra $1,000 profit on your dumb car? Is that all your soul is worth? I think it's worth more than that. So don't lie in a car deal. Don't lie to your spouse. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Don't indulge your flesh. What God has forbidden, we must not entertain. Let God's judgment on our sin sober us so that we see our sin for what it is. We let the gospel expose the darkness of our hearts and our living so that we walk in the ways of God, the ways of blessing. And when we see our sin correctly, then we're going to be living the better life, the life of blessing that God has for us. But there's a second way that God's judgment leads us to a better life. That's God's judgment leads us from futility to flourishing. Leads us from futility to flourishing. So in verses 9 to 12, God has just told us, here's why I'm judging you. In verses 13 to 16, he describes what that judgment is going to be like. Here's what judgment will be. So, Verse 13, he says, As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. Pause button right there. What sort of images come to mind when you read the word desolation? He uses it twice, here in verse 13 and then at the very end of verse 16. He's going to make you a desolate place. What sort of image comes to mind when you think of desolation? Some sort of like apocalyptic vision, scorched earth. Those are the types of things we think of. But I want you to look at how God describes this desolation starting in verse 14. You will eat but not be satisfied for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save and what you do save I'll give to the sword. You will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil. And you will tread grapes but not drink the wine. Isn't that a strange depiction of desolation? 
Oftentimes when we think of God's judgment, we think of fire and torment. That's biblical. That's proper. But that's not all there is to God's judgment. Here in Micah chapter 6, God describes a judgment of futility. Have you ever had that dream where you had to run somewhere fast, but your legs wouldn't move? You're just anchored in place? That feeling of frustration, that sense of futility, that's what's happening here in the passage. This judgment of futility is not something in some uh, far-off future. What God's describing is a present-day, here-and-now type of judgment. So you're going to try to do things, and it's not going to get done. God uses this language elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe His judgment, His present tense judgment against His people. But it's a judgment of futility. You'll eat, but you'll still be hungry. You'll get stuff, you won't be able to save it. You're going to plant seeds, but you will not get a harvest. You'll press olives, but you won't get the oil. You're going to tread grapes, but you won't drink the wine. And you can feel the frustration in you as you read that sort of description. Does God still judge in this way? We need to be careful here because we cannot pinpoint God's specific judgments in the lives of people. But I think we can see shadows of this judgment of futility anytime sin leads to broken relationships or sin leads to financial failure. Or sin leads to the inability to be satisfied with life. Have you ever wondered how a person can have every worldly success and still be utterly miserable? It could be because of God's judgment of futility. But this is not what God wants for His people. God doesn't want His people to live lives of futility. He wants us to flourish. And we've already heard that in Micah's ministry. Back in chapter 4, verse 4, Micah described the flourishing that God desires for His people in a future day. When God sets everything right, here's what it's going to be like. In Micah chapter 4, verse 4, He said, Each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. It's it's a short line, but it describes the flourishing of God's people in in which we have time and opportunity for our crops to grow so we can enjoy them fully. When we walk with God, we'll sow and then we will reap an incredible harvest. We'll tread grapes and we will drink the wine. We'll plant a fig tree and enjoy its shade. These are the word pictures of flourishing for God's people. Now, Again, we have to be so very careful here. I'm not saying that every failed plan of ours is the result of the judgment of God. It could be that your failed plans are actually God's grace to protect you. And Christian flourishing in this life does not necessarily look like the world's definition of flourishing, but rather God's people are able to flourish whether we have a little or whether we have a lot We know that we have everything when we have Christ. But you've got to know that when you live by the mantra, my life, my rules, you will always be stopped by the judgment of God. You cannot live a hellish life and flourish in your relationships or in your work or in your inner life or in your eternal life. 
God will not bless your selfishness, but he will bless your trust in him. And there he will help you flourish. And so that's it. This is how God's judgment helps us to live a better life. When we're talking about the good life, we don't always talk about his judgment as a factor, but Micah chapter 6 has shown us these two ways that God's judgment leads us to live better lives. First of all, God's judgment helps us see our sin correctly. And then second, God's judgment leads us from futility to flourishing. Look, God's judgment is not some cheap scare tactic. Rather, it's a grand truth that calls us to evaluate the ways we are living our lives. And any time we read about God's judgment, we are not far from His grace. And embedded in this passage are some incredible glimpses of grace. I want to make sure you saw these three glimpses of grace in this passage. The first glimpse of God's grace is God's voice. In verse 9, the voice of the Lord calls out to the city and it's wise to fear your name. The city heard the voice of God through the prophet Micah. There's grace because the announcement of judgment is also an invitation to turn. So if you've heard God's voice today through his word, then you've heard his grace. There's a second display of grace. That's the grace of God's discipline. Also in verse 9, pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. There's a word of grace there. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12 says, The Lord disciplines those He loves. You don't discipline the one you hate. You discipline the one you love. You want to turn them from their self-destruction to a path of blessing. And so there's grace in the Lord's discipline. When He exposes our sin, when the light of the gospel exposes the darkness in our lives, there we find the, God, uh, the grace of God. And then finally, there's the grace of God's substitute. But we've got to go outside of Micah chapter 6 for this. In verse 16, God said to the wicked city of Jerusalem, He said, I'll make you a desolate place and the city's residence an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. And for sure, God's judgment fell on Jerusalem in the form of the Babylonian army. But there was a greater judgment to come. Because he is a God of love, a God of grace, he chose to send his own son, Jesus, to die an object of contempt, to bear the scorn of his people. And I want you to listen to how Matthew described the scorn Jesus endured at the cross, starting in Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. I just want you to listen. They stripped him. And dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews! Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and said you'd rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He took the contempt. He bore our scorn. He died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead for your salvation. And so, Christian, since your sin has been judged by God at the cross, you're free from it. You're no longer bound to sin, but now you are bound to righteousness. Do not add to Christ's mockery by living a sinful, hypocritical life. Christ died for your sins so that you would live for righteousness and do that today. What if you're not a follower of Jesus? I hope you've listened carefully today to both the judgment and the grace of God. It's something that you have to contend with as you consider your own soul and your standing before Him. Does God have a right to require something of you? You may struggle with that idea. You may think that a God of love wouldn't require something from us, but rather He would just affirm us. And so, look, there's a sense in which we might think a God of love is going to be a God who universally saves all people, no matter how they live. But there's a logical end to that argument, correct? I mean, we'd, we'd have to call it the Hitler line. If God is a universalist, if he universally saves everyone, no matter of how they live their lives, what are you going to do with Hitler? So you might say, okay, yeah, there's a line to be drawn. I'll, I'll draw the line there. Here's the curious thing about the lines we draw. We always draw ourselves on the good side of the line. But who has the right to say where the line of requirement lands? Is it me or is it my creator? Well, God is the one who has told all mankind what he requires of us. And that line is drawn at the threshold of sinless perfection. And at the point that you are not sinlessly perfect, which would be every one of us in this room, all mankind, we are beyond the line of blessing. We are in the path of judgment. But because he is a God of love, a God of compassion, he has shown his love in that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, to die in your place for your sin. Jesus died as if he was beyond the line, as if he had broken every requirement, guilty of every sin, though he never sinned. Yet he died as if he had. He died as your substitute in your place, and he did that because he loves you. And his promise to you is that if you will turn from your sin and if you will trust in him, you'll be forgiven, you'll be saved, you'll be his You will live a life of flourishing now and forever. So the voice of the Lord calls out to you today. Let Jesus take your contempt and your scorn. And in its place, would you receive his joy and his flourishing? Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for your love to us, a love and a grace that is seen in the announcement of your judgment, and we need that. Make us think right about our sin. Make us think right about the nature of your judgment so that we would live lives of righteousness. May we as your children, as your church, not grow comfortable with what we would consider small sins. May we not justify wicked actions. But Lord, let us, let us be troubled by what you're troubled by. Let us walk and live with a holy anger for the sin that pervades our lives and the sin that uh, has invaded our world. Lord, let us live bound to righteousness that upon seeing us, people would see Christ. Upon speaking to us, they would hear the words of Christ. Lord, that they would experience from us His compassion and mercy. And Lord, I pray for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Lord, free them today from the contempt and scorn that they deserve because of their sin. May they enjoy your compassion and grace today as they turn to Jesus for their rescue. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing this song in response to the word of the Lord. Would you please stand?